Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August the 12th, 2016. This is episode 1848 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. Um, I'll tell you what, this is a great show because, well, we get a lot of assistance with this. This is the Expert Council Show. We have 13 members of the Expert Council. Uh, you will hear from six of them today, plus I will be answering a question as well. The way you submit content for a show like this is you send an email to me at jack at the survival podcast dot com and put TSPC expert in the subject line. Then give your question, followed by your details. Question first, details second, and tell me who the question's for. If you're not sure about all the expert council members we have, if you look at any show like today's episode, 1848, at the survivalpodcast.com, you'll see a list of uh, everybody's websites, and you'll also see a link where you can meet the entire expert council. And you can read their bios and see what they know and what you can ask them and stuff like that. You know, I want to point something out, too. Like, I think sometimes it really would help if you read the bios. Um, to realize how diverse the expert council is. We get a lot of questions on military gear for Tim Glantz. Makes sense. You know, guys, uh, runs Old Grouse Military Surplus, been in the military for over 30 years, um, chief warrant officer, you know, specializing in vehicles and vehicle maintenance. So it makes sense. Vehicles, surplus. That's, he's also a ham radio operator, guys. So comms questions for Tim Glantz. That's just one example. So what are we going to have today? Well, Tim's not actually in the lineup today. He's already been uh, taken care of for the week, the, the uh, month. We have new questions going out to these guys. I'll be doing up their write-up on Sunday. If you want to get a question in for expert counsel, it would be good to do it this weekend. But anyway, we're going to talk about adding new batteries to an existing bank if your existing battery bank isn't really that old, say a month, two, three, something like that with Stephen Harris, because his general advice is you don't add new batteries to an old bank. Also, what about empowering your kids when you can't homeschool them? Mike and Sue LaPreeze, uh, the homeschool team, uh, talk about homeschooling all the time, but there's a lot of people that say, I can't do it, but what can I do to maximize my child's life, future, and freedom, even though they're going to government schools? Next up today, bees stuck in the cinder block wall. How the hell do I get them out of there? From the bee whisperer, Michael Jordan. And after a workout, we have one guy that says, I smell like ammonia. That can't be good. What the hell's going on? Gary Collins, our nutrition expert, will weigh in on that. Uh, and then we have a weedy field. We want to take it to quality pasture. Ben Falk will talk about that. And what's up with this thing called type 1 errors? Jeff Lawton, permaculture guru extraordinaire, will tackle that one. And speaking of tackle, I will be asking, answer, asking, I will be answering your question for a listener with a three-year-old that wants to start taking the kiddo fishing. About what to get to take a three-year-old fishing. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out readymaderesources.com to learn more today. Hey, guys, why don't you show off your survival podcast pride by shopping at tspgear.com where we have awesome tools like the Pocket Shot Slingshot and the TSP Edition of the Genesis Knife by MT Knives along with shirts, patches, and more. Learn more at tspgear.com. 
All right, guys, and with that knocked out, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode before we get into your questions, the year 1848, because the episode is episode 1848. Alex Shrugged has two for us today at TSP Wiki. First, we have the California Gold Rush, and then we have Save Lives First, Obey Laws Second. And in other news, the Associated Press is founded this year. People are starving for world news, so several new agencies form a cooperative to save money. The cornerstone of the Washington Monument is laid. The capstone will be set in December of 1884, dedicated early the following year. That's a long time, 1848 to 1884. I think the little war in the middle there is going to cause a delay in construction. And the Communist Manifesto is published this year. The world shudders. A lot of people are going to die for a principle that can't work without divine intervention, and they sure aren't going to ask for that. All right, so let's take a look at the California gold rush. Shh. Don't tell anyone about the gold. Folks at Fort Sutter are trying to keep this a secret for a few weeks as the Mexican territory of California transitions to a United States territory. God only knows what might happen if anyone found out that there's gold at Sutter's Mill. In the 1830s, Johann Sutter arrived from Switzerland and changed his name to John Sutter. He settled in Mexico's California to establish New Switzerland, which encompasses present-day Sacramento and Yuba City. He builds Fort Sutter for protection against Indian attack. Settlers make it to the first stop as they come over the Sierra Nevada mountains, and New Switzerland prospers. Sutter needs lumber for expansion, so he hires James Marshall to build water-powered sawmill, and that is where the problem starts. Marshall finds gold nuggets in the stream. So why is that a problem? John Sutter has been promoting the region as a place for agricultural riches, not riches riches. He is wholly unprepared for 300,000 people that will be arriving in California over the next seven years looking for a fortune in gold, turning California into Swiss cheese as they dig places up. He, in, in reality, has a year before the real rush begins. It won't be enough. My take by Alex Shrug. If you recall early television programming, there was some kid named Timmy who was always falling down a well or a mine shaft, and his dog, his collie dog named Lassie would run for help. In California, falling down a mine shaft remains a real danger in some areas. During the gold rush, if a miner was digging an exploratory shaft looking for gold, he didn't always bother to backfill if he didn't find what he was looking for. In some areas, the hills are riddled with tunnels intersecting each other. Like an underground city, the, shaft, the open shafts have long been overgrown with bush. They are virtually invisible until it's too late. So the state of California has hired people to find these abandoned mines, map them, and then fill them with artificial mix that acts as both a plug for hole and marker. As a teenage boy, I would camp around Yuba City every summer with our Boy Scout troop. The region was part of the New Switzerland land grant. It is truly a beautiful place, but watch your step, okay? Yeah, um, coming from a mining area myself, in my case, coal mines, which uh, where I grew up, pretty much if you dug a hole deep enough, there was coal there. So there was a lot of this. And uh, before the area went to full-on strip mining, which is where they just basically dig huge craters the size of which you cannot imagine into the ground, a lot of the mining early was shaft mining. This is when you think back to um, the Molly Maguires, if you know anything about that, I'm sure that'll come up in the history segment at some point. And the Irish coal miners in, uh, in Pennsylvania in the 1800s, Uh, you know, before the advent of these giant shovels, a lot of the mining was, was uh, shaft mining. And so that the miners wouldn't 
perish and die down in the mines, you'd put these shafts in. So you'd have you know a main shaft that went down on an angle that people would walk into, or you'd ro you know roll cars in and out of to get down to where you could mine the coal. But when you got deep enough in, you didn't get a good airflow. Okay, so one way to solve that problem is you just drive a shaft from straight a vertical shaft, and that creates an airflow. It also creates a very deep hole into which you can fall and die. Um, many of those were left open, so that's a hazard. The bigger hazard, actually, though, in that area is that many times the companies, when they abandoned mining, did fill them in. Sometimes they were digging lots of holes and needed to get rid of stuff, you know. And uh, where better than your old shaft holes, because then you can pretend you're doing something good for the environment, right? You're filling a hole in, which seems to make sense, except here's the problem. If you don't fill that hole in right, what you've done is you've filled up a long straw-shaped tube, that's what a shaft is, and then underneath it is a great big cavern. Okay, the great, so the, the area is, you're not filling in the whole mine, you're only filling in the shaft. And there's a place for that material to eventually matriculate and go to. So places that you'd been before that, you, basically you create artificial sinkholes. That's the best way you can think of it. As eventually through erosion and other things, that material can begin to actually spread out down in the mine, that whole shaft can cave back in. And it can happen at really bad times. A week before graduation, uh, we had a day that we called Senior Cheat Day. Um, and, you know, it was just a day that all seniors basically cut class. And it used to be kind of the day before the last day of school, but the school wised up to it and put things in that said basically, you know, you won't graduate if you don't come this day. So we just moved Cheat Day to like a couple weeks before graduation. And like half the senior class just doesn't show up that day. And uh, four uh, kids from my senior class were out in a, uh, like a Bronco, uh, out, you know, kind of four-wheeling type thing. And uh, two of them I actually knew fairly well. Two of them I really didn't. Uh, two males and two females. And uh, as they were driving through this path that they had been down many times before, one of those gave way. And all four of them died going down that shaft. And these types of real dangers exist throughout our country today and they are legacies of the past that just won't go away that seems to be to be a real world analogy to things that we are, that aren't as material today consequences of our actions from 50 years 100 years 25 years ago that are like mine shafts that blow up in our face from time to time the middle east springs to mind and i wonder what type of metaphorical mine shafts that can open up we're leaving behind for generations 25 and 50 years to 150 years from now with the things that we're doing today. My take by Jack Spierko. Kind of heavy, guys. So let's uh, get right into it and get into your first uh, question today for the expert council. This one is for Stephen Harris, and it's about adding new batteries to an existing battery bank. But, Steve, my existing battery bank isn't like a year old. It's like two, three months old. Can that work? Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Guys, I'm really sorry I've been gone for a while. My wife fell and broke her ankle, and it's been surgery and taking care of her and all that other fun stuff. And so I've been off the face of the earth. So thank you very much for excusing my absence, but I'm back doing fun questions. And I have one here. 
It says, question for Steve. I had an existing battery bank which went bad as the batteries themselves had problems. My vendor confirmed that he even stopped carrying them because of all of the returns. Now, if you go to battery1234.com, you will find a battery acid hydrometer. There's the needle type, and then there's the type with four floating ball bulbs in it. It's got four little balls in it that float at different heights depending upon the density of the electrolyte. You can also get this for about $2.50 at Walmart. I would prefer for you to have the floating ball type hydrometer because if you ever wonder, is your battery bad? Is your charger bad? Is a cell bad? You open up the cells and you check the electrolyte density on each of the cells of a fully charged battery or as what you think is a fully charged battery and you get three balls floating on cell one and cell two and cell three and it's like oh only one ball floating on cell four yeah no there is the problem all the cells should be have all the balls floating at the, at the same level and a fresh battery Fully charged will have all four of the balls floating at the top in the little syringe. So to continue with his question, so I replaced them with the new deep cycles that he carries, which are DECA, D-E-K-A's. And he's got the DECA 8 Alpha 31 Delta Tango Marlin. I got two of them since they were more expensive, and I only had a small amount of credit with him. We barter my computer work for his auto work and for his auto parts. That, my friends, is the way to do things in the new economy. Barter. Anyways, I've got a fairly big job coming up with him and thought this would be a good time to get back up to four batteries. But I know, Steve, from your class and your thing with Jack... I know you shouldn't add a new battery into a bank that is already established with old batteries. So my question is, does three months constitute old? The batteries I got, I'm using right now, are only three months old. We haven't had to use the bank at all since it went back in in May. The two batteries have just sat on the charger in a very dry 75-degree crawl space. So I don't know if it would be a problem like it would be replacing a battery that went bad after two years in an old bank. I don't want to go cheap if it's a bad idea, but I don't want to waste the two I've got now either. So worst case, I could come up with some kind of project for the extra batteries. So bottom line in this particular situation, Steve, can I add two more batteries of the same batteries or should I just go and get four more batteries and move these two three-month-old ones to another project? Needless to say, this is kind of a yes or no question. Okay, the answer is th- really three months is not too old. Uh, it, it's right on the edge. If you told me these were six months old and that you've charged them and discharged them, I would say no, don't mix them with each other. To reiterate, what I did in with the class with Jack that you can go listen to for nothing. It's audio. It's all free at battery1234.com. I said, don't mix old and new batteries. Don't even mix mildly old and new batteries. You just can't buy two batteries now, buy two more in six months and two more in six months because the whole pack will come down to the 
strength of the two the oldest batteries. It's like the weakest link in a chain. The second you get a battery and you start to use it, even if it's 100% charged, the battery is dying slowly but surely a little bit over time. So you really want to have all your batteries the same age. If you can't afford everything right now, you can't afford the battery, you can't afford the inverter and the cables, then just go take the money and go buy the batteries now. Get all your batteries at once. And then go buy the inverter and then go buy the other accessories and everything that I talk about. But get all your batteries at the same time. And a lot of batteries come with a sticker on them saying what month and year they were made. Make sure that when you get batteries that they got all the same stickers on them. If you go to Sam's Club to get golf cart, deep cycle batteries or marine batteries, you'll find little round stickers of different colors with the month and the year on them of when they were made. In this situation, in this question that Mick is asking, Mick, I would tell you to buy four more batteries. If it's, if you could afford to get four right now with the new project and add them to the two, Instead of just buying two, I would buy the four, and I'd add them to your battery bank, and you would have six. Six is a good size for a big battery bank. I mean, once you get past six, you go to eight or 12, you, you I mean, look, these batteries are going to last you about five years, and you're spending all that money for five years. Your money is better spent on a battery bank of, let's say, two batteries and taking that extra money you'd spend on the other four or six batteries and putting that money towards a generator, a good charger, and stored gasoline. Stored gasoline can work for your car. Stored gasoline can work for your generator. Your generator can power your house. Your battery bank can power the things that I tell you to power with it in the Battery 1, 2, 3, 4 show. Do not think your battery bank of any size is going to power your house under any circumstances, under any conditions. That is, no, it's not a lightsaber. Okay, I know half of you are chuckling. You wanted me to say that. So now you got gasoline. Now you can power parts of your house off of your battery. So that's what we call run silent, run deep. And then you can go up on the surface like a submarine. You can run noisy. You can start your generator, and you can ma- run the microwave, make breakfast, run the washer and dryer, and you know, run your well pump and everything. And then you can shut off the generator and run silent, run deep. And at the same time, you got extra gasoline there. So if you have to go and do things with the car, you got fuel that no one else has, so you can drive and other people can't. And if you took my class, How to Power Your House from Your Car, which I did with Jack, which is at solar1234.com, then you would know how to power the things in your house with your car. So now you got a trifecta. you got a generator. you got a battery bank. You have a car. This is called two is one, one is none, three is a guarantee, or three is for me. This is the type of stuff you want in your energy preparedness, folks, and it works very good. Thank you for the great question, Mick. If you want to know about more of the stuff I teach, it's all free. You can go to Stephen1234.com and get a whole list of everything that I've done and go listen to it to your heart's content. Guys, keep on emailing in the questions. I'm back in the game, and I'm ready to answer a whole bunch of them for you. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Good stuff from Steve, and I agree. You know, It's kind of on the edge, but it's okay. I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't go much further out than that, but uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy four just because these two are a few months old. I, I wouldn't do that unless I really thought, you know what, these two would make a great two-battery battery bank over here, and I'll just use all these peripherals and drop these four new ones in there. That would be different, but I wouldn't do it just because you're worried about the whole old battery, new battery thing. Next question is for Mike and Sue LaPrise, and it's about... You know, getting your kids uh, as much empowerment in self-directed learning as you can, even when they have to go to government schools because it's just not in the cards for you to homeschool. Mike, Sue, take it away, guys. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live with the expert counsel. Hey, Jack and TSP community. We have an excellent question today about empowered, confident kids who can apply critical thinking. Nicole in Tennessee asks... What can parents who are unable to homeschool do to foster independence, real practical learning, and to equip their child to not be absorbed by the matrix while in a government school? Nicole has a friend who is homeschooling, but life events have caused that to not be an option at this time. Nicole, we feel for your friend who is trying to do the right thing for her children. We have friends who have been in that same situation. We constantly preach resilience, so remind your friend that this is a good time for her to demonstrate resilience to her children. This is a good news opportunity because there are lots of things a family can do if they'll begin with the end in mind. If your end product is an empowered, independent, confident child who can manage critical thinking, then parents and grandparents out there, start living that better life yourself. We're asking for a multi-generational getting together and thinking about why you do what you do and what you can change and do better. I'm not that fond of change, but I'm lucky enough to be married to Sue, who loves to change when the end result will produce a healthier family. The strength of a nation lies in the strength of the families that do the work and who work together so that they are increasingly less dependent on the government, but interdependent with each other and then their neighbors. We spend a lot of time talking about how we can help kids be better, but if parents aren't willing to look at their own lives and start asking those critical thinking questions for themselves, they'll have a very hard time instilling that in their children. Simple questions like, who can we work with to be encouraged in changing our family behaviors? What would be the result of me getting up on time every day? Why did we spend money on A when we really wanted B? Where can we go to save money and reduce our expenses? When are we actually going to sit down and solve the problems we're having as a family? How can we spend our time as a family better? We're not talking psychobabble here, but practical, measurable things. If families would run their house on some of the better business practices, like don't expect what you don't inspect, and have a plan to inspect what you've agreed to do, making sure to be open, honest, and accountable for those measurements, you'd be surprised at the impact it could have. Years ago, when ISO was the quality improvement trend, Michael brought that model home, and we began to apply it to me actually getting up on time and making the bed, which seems so silly that a grown person with four children would need a checklist to get those two things completed each day. I was seriously headed in the direction of Lady Macbeth, allowing the thoughts and feelings of being overwhelmed by, by what I wasn't getting done, so instead was choosing depression. You want to raise resilient children? Listen carefully and think about this. When Macbeth said, How does your patient, doctor? And the doctor responded, Not so sick, my lord, as she is troubled with thick coming fancies that keep her from her rest. Macbeth again. 
Cure her of that. Canst thou minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain, and with some sweet oblivious antidote, cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon her heart. And the doctor replies, therein the patient must minister to himself. We as individuals have to start fixing ourselves. There is no sweet oblivious antidote to negative thoughts and bad behavior. It's our assumptions here that the TSP community has already taken the red pill, but there are so many facets to the rabbit hole, and you have to keep thinking about things differently, including how people parent. Don't start with looking over your neighbor's parenting or the person at Walmart who's having a bad parenting day. Start with yourself and make a list of five things that you can change that will reflect the changes you want in your child. For example, our question to Nicole, a former government school educator who fled, also says, I know the early years are not yet as bad as the later ones in schools. Now this is an example of where the rabbit hole gets deeper. The later years in government school can't be as bad as they are with a 33 to 40 percent dropout rate if the early years aren't so horrible as to set them up for that future failure. Anyway, once you get going on making those personal changes that are going to impact your family and friends, we recommend the following thoughts and habits be encouraged in your children. Empowering children means giving them responsibility and choices while allowing them to fail and redo until they get something right on their own. We see way too many parents stepping in and helping kids who don't need help. In scouting, when we go hiking, it was the kid's job to read the map, orient the compass, and decide on the direction. I would get so supremely frustrated with the parents who would get all involved or not let the kids go the wrong way. Mostly kids would go the wrong way because they were careless and in a hurry, which is exactly why the parents were telling them the answer. If you approach parenting with a let's-just-get-this-done attitude, in the long run, you're going to get a whole lot less done because your teenage, helpless child will still be nursing. Now, our 24-year-old is super thankful for all the misdirections she was allowed to make from 7 to 18 when following a map. Way fewer times at 18 because while wandering Europe, she would get off the train or bus at the wrong stop and even without the language, could pretty quickly check over the map and get back on course. Don't underestimate your kids. A three-year-old can make an egg and toast with your help. Yes, it will be messy. But an eight-year-old who's been helping for five years can manage bacon, eggs, and toast on their own. Yes, it will take them longer than it would take you, but that means you have time to do something else or have time for a conversation with them while they're making their own breakfast. The power of conversation in a family is exponential. Like compound interest, time invested early will pay great dividends later. While we recommend and love family meetings, there's a daily conversation that goes on by just spending time together on a project. When I was 13, I went to work for my dad at his corner store butcher shop. He was a great guy, but a workaholic, so this was my first chance to really get to know him. I started out by listening to the conversations at the store with the customers, and as I listened to the conversations about the Bruins, the Red Sox, the politics, and people's lives, I started asking questions and became part of the conversation. This time spent working with my dad went far deeper into who I have become as an adult than all my years of private Catholic school. The store was where real life took place and people's lives connected. My dad never underestimated my abilities and he always gave me the chance to do it over and over and over again until I got it right. 
You're all thinking, I bet he did. You also know I didn't appreciate it at the time. It's hard to remember when your children are small that you're not their best friend. You're the parent, and your job is to set a great example and give your kids boundaries so they can live a happy, successful life doing what they love. No one likes people who are out of bounds. At the Children's Museum yesterday, there was a nine-year-old there with his grandma that was going crazy. The kid was going crazy, disrupting everyone's learning and literally climbing the walls. At one point, while climbing a structure not intended for that purpose, he slipped and smashed his nuts. My first thought was, that couldn't have happened to a nicer kid. At a deeper level, that's exactly what happens throughout life to people who weren't given boundaries. We need to give our kids confidence because they've actually accomplished things, not the false confidence where we're always telling them how great they are and that their behavior is okay. Empowered, confident adults will be a product of critical thinking in the truest sense of the word, not the one who can do the best on a test or esoteric puzzle, but who can solve a practical problem because they have enough uncritical thinking, that is basic facts, under their belt because they've learned deeply about the problem they have to solve. It's a combination of self-directed learning where you know how to find answers and teach yourself as much as possible and knowing when to ask for help and who to ask. If you've seen a chicken once, you'll gain a superficial understanding. They smell, have feathers, are lipless, poop at will, are loud, and most don't like being held. If you've been raising 850 chickens a year for 10 years, you're going to have a seriously deeper, uncritical thinking base to call on when one of those chickens dies. What we're missing in all the critical thinking educational models is a lack of uncritical thinking about anything that matters. Do you remember the critical thinking model that said, if you're in a raft with 10 people and only have enough food for five, how do you decide who to kick out? I haven't ever been in that situation, but I'm pretty good critical thinker, so I think I could figure it out. However, today, I need to save money on car insurance because I'm getting ready to add a 17-year-old male to my policy. I need some uncritical information called facts so I can apply the critical thinking. For our kids, we try to give them as many choices as possible because we find, and our older kids agree with us, that it was in being given freedom to make their own choices that has allowed them to understand they're personally responsible for their choices and that they have to get the facts before making those choices. We have a simple choice every single day for our younger kids. When you finish your chores, you get breakfast. If you're hungry, go faster. Then there is that balance in letting them do things on their own and showing them how it's done. One of our sons was very small at eight, and he would let people pick on him, which would drive his two older sisters crazy, but he didn't want them to interfere. So I watched for a few weeks as he interacted with other kids. I talked to him about how he could respond. We talked about allowing yourself to get picked on wasn't just bad for you, but bad for the kid picking on you because he wasn't learning boundaries. I encouraged my son to handle the problem himself, but he didn't. So one day I stepped in and solved the problem, looked at my son and asked him, do you want me to solve this for you each time or can you handle it? Since I'm not the most diplomatic person and this son is, he assured me he could handle it. Not only did he handle it from then on, but he has the most excellent boundaries of any of my kids, even with me. All that we've talked about is not possible without spending quality time with you, your children. And you don't get quality time without a large quantity of time. You never know when those key learning experiences will arise. 
Children that go to government schools spend 10 hours a day between travel to and from, and then all the time behind a desk. Add eight hours of sleep, and that leaves six hours to develop the children that you want and that this country needs. Don't farm them out to sports teams or other non-family activities. Don't kid yourselves. Sitting in the stands watching a kid sitting on the bench is not a family activity. Also, Jack had some great insight. If you listen to episode 1825, Raising Resilient Children in a World Full of Wusses, you'll find even more ideas. Thanks, Jack, for another opportunity to share our passion for healthy families. Parents and grandparents out in TSP land, stop making changes in your own behavior that will lead to your personal empowerment, greater confidence, and apply true critical thinking based on more uncritical thinking. Then, let that roll downhill as you teach your children and inspire the people around you. Remember, when designing the life you'd love to live, it's not compound interest that is the greatest force in your universe, but as the doctor in Macbeth said, the patient must minister to himself. Yeah, um, let me just say, those of you that know parents that you feel like are sheltering their little teacup kids too much, uh, that episode, 1825, I have available for you on YouTube. And uh, I have it completely 100% commercial free on YouTube. And I'll put a link in the show notes for it today. And it might be a good thing to just say, hey, this guy has some really unique ideas about raising kids uh, uh, today. He, he's kind of, you can say, like, if you say, like, he's kind of out there, but man, he really makes sense in some ways. So it's, it, let me explain this. If, if you do it like, you really need to listen to this guy because uh, you're raising your kid like a, a, a teacup and this guy knows his shit and he's some survival guy and it's not going to work. But if you kind of like, well, you know, it's kind of interesting what he has to say. I, what do you think about it, right? So that gives them the, 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 the freedom to listen to it and then tell you how stupid you are for thinking that I know what I'm talking about. And then they might listen long enough to actually learn. And oh my God, Live from Texas, there's this mysterious substance outside my window right now. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's quite wet. I believe this is what they call rain. It is pouring here. That's awesome. Anyway, I just had to share that with you because the whole place is starting to turn brown again. And woohoo, I was hoping for rain tomorrow and Sunday, and we're getting rain today. That's badass. So anyway, um, you might want to share that with them. But here's what not to do. I talked about this before. Right when I first put that out, I put this on Facebook. And somebody tagged somebody they clearly were related to because they both had the last name. And it just tagged them. And it, it said, you're raising pussies. And it was that um, that episode. And I was like, that's probably not very constructive. And oh, um, this is fun. You guys will like this. So w with no... Prodding by me whatsoever, the editors over at Permaculture News at the Permaculture Research Institute, uh, which is actually the editor there is actually Bonnie, which is uh, Jeff Lawton's daughter. Uh, I guess she's probably close to my age, maybe a little bit younger, um, is actually running Permaculture News now. And she listens to the show, and she's like, this segment, now that he took it out of the show and made it by someone on YouTube, would be great for permaculture. So they put it in permaculture news, and as, as you might imagine, we have some real uh, social justice warriors over there. And they took exception to the word wusses because they think it stands for pussy and not like a cat or a weak person, but, you know, a female body part. And that made it misogynistic and sexist and whatever. And I'm like, well, I made the show title up and I didn't make it for permaculture news I made it for my audience but I was talking about a weak ass person 
But see, the people that are offended by that, and there are, they're like all butthurt about it. And one person wrote like 80 freaking paragraphs of how you should talk to Mr. Spirico and explain how it can be hurtful, and I'd like to have a Skype conversation. I'm serious. He wants to have a Skype conversation with me so I can better understand. Okay, those people are the result of parents that don't set boundaries and consequences and parent with resilience. That these people today, that you go, how do people think like this? They weren't born that way. They were created. Don't create them. I have some more thoughts on kids today. I'll save for my last question of the day. Anyway, with that, let's get into the next one. Uh, do you have a problem, Michael Jordan? There's these bees. They're in a wall. Yeah, that wall's made out of center blocks, and I don't want them in there. And they're really pissed off about having to leave. So, Michael, what do we do, man? Hey, this is your good buddy, Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. This question comes from Dave. His question states, How would you suggest dealing with a swarm of bees that have moved into a cinder block wall? Is it possible to coax out the queen and save the hive? Well, the hive is basically the block wall. You're looking to remove the colony. And it's possible. It just takes lots of work, a little skill set, and the ability not to panic. Uh, about a week ago, he noticed a, a sudden heavy collection of bees in the corner of their home. There were a few hundred outside and probably another hundred in their basement. We never saw the ex uh, expecting clump swarm as they were Im immediately a storm with heavy wind and rain. Over the next days, all the bees inside died, and we thought that was the end of it. But two days later, there was a lot more activity around the small hole in the cinder block with several hundred bees lined up tenor. A bee friend brought over a Langstroth hive and set it up about a foot from the hole with a tunnel connecting them so the bees could travel through the hive to get in out. Our hope is that the queen will find her way into the hive, then we can also move it back from the wall, and that everybody moves out from the cinder blocks to join her. Then we can seal up the wall. We just want to also know, do we need to open the wall to remove comb if they built it in there? And hopefully we end up with a healthy hive on this property that we remove from this wall. Please let me know if this is possible or if we've made a mistake. Thanks for your advice and your time, Dave. Well, Dave, using the Langstroth hive as a trap out is a super idea. But you need to push the bees out of the wall. And to do so, you also need to put a cotton ball full of lemongrass oil inside the Langstroth hive as a lure to lure the bees inside. So without looking at the site and seeing the whole problem, here's some tips on moving bees out of a building. So you might also have to remember the time of year that it is, or that season, the location in accordance with the sun, altitude and climate you're in. This will all tell you if it's a late swarm, the location of the bees, the activity that they're going to have, and if they're just going to die off because it's too late in the year. Because if they do not have enough time to build something large over time, they will not make enough food to winterize, depending on your location in the world. Now, if you're on the Mediterranean belt, you're going to have bees all the time. But if you're here in Wyoming, basically a swarm that's after July 27th will probably not make it unless it's heavily fed so they can build comb. 
Now, if you're talking about cinder blocks, that most of the time they have a four inch by four inch hole in the center. This, this center goes from the top of the wall all the way down to the bottom. I'm not sure how high the wall is or the location of the hole where the bees are coming in and out of. But if you have cinder blocks, there's going to be a whole center that's going to be cut out where the bees will have activity. What I would try to do is drill a hole, and I would use a hole about a half inch to three quarter inch, and I'd drill several of these holes starting from the top of the wall down. I would start with the first hole at about eight inches from the top of the wall or the ceiling, and then measure about every three foot, dropping down and drilling these holes until I get to the location of basically where the hole is, where the bees are coming in out of. Now, it is kind of expensive, but if you ever get a scope camera, it has a little optic wand that you can kind of poke in the holes and look, you'll be able to look to see what kind of comb and menace you have. You'll be able to see exactly where the bees are, how they're building their structure and everything by looking at this remote camera with a little scope on it. Now, many bee removal guys are using a thermal imaging machine, and what they're doing is on their cameras, or they just go to a air conditioning store, they just buy a thermal gun, and what it does is it shoots a little red dot on the wall, and that location, within about 6 to 18 inches in the circle diameter, is basically what they're looking for at heat. So you can kind of scope that wall up and down and find the rise of temperature, which would be the colony of bees in the wall. Now, like I said, as they're going up the cinder block, it's only going to be a four-inch location, and they might fill that whole cinder block from the top of the ceiling all the way down to the location of the hole. Remember, right where the bees are going in and out may not necessarily be where the bees are. So that's something to think of. So if you can drill a couple holes, scope it out, that way you're not doing a lot of damage by breaking out a lot of things, or using a thermal gun to kind of look to see where the bees might be clustered is a pretty good idea. So you've set up your bee box. You've got a couple frames in it. You've got your lemongrass oil in it. You've even put your funnel filter over top of the wall hole. So when the bees come out, they're coming out towards the box. And when they're going back, they really can't get back in because they're not going to the back of the, fu of the funnel to get in, causing them to want to go into the new box. Once you've got that, you've got your holes drilled. You've kind of got a location of where you think the bees are. I would take a wooden dowel. And I would just take some rags and I would soak them in a, a formula called Be Gone. You can get it from Man Lake, a couple different uh, vendors and companies. And what Be Gone is, is, is a, uh, a very powerful odor that dries bees away. Most of the time they spray it in what they call a fume board, which is placed on top of a, a honey box. The smell is so bad it pushes the bees out of the honey box down into the brood chamber without affecting your honey and which you then can just remove the whole honey box off because the bees have been pushed down by the scent that is made from this Be Gone. So you can take Be Gone and you just kind of stuff it in the rags and you start from the top, pushing them in and making the bees push downward. The bees will run from this. It's almost like smoking out the bees without a lot of smoke and the possibility of fire. Some people even use smoke by pushing it in the holes, plugging the holes as they go down and pushing the bees, just smoking the bees, causing them to run. But smoke lingers, and we also know that if you have any insulation or anything in the wall, if you have any spark or anything, it could catch a fire or burn your bees' wings from the heat of the smoke. So using this Bee Gone and a little bit of rags, you push them in the hole, and I'd start at the top. 
I would give it about three to four minutes and then stick it in the next hole, pushing those bees down. Every time you do so, you should be down at the exit hole watching to see the queen or cluster come out. If you see the queen out, grab her. Put her directly into this new hive that you have, and the bees are just going to walk over and go right to her. If you start seeing clustering or bearding on the wall, that might be the queen where the, where the bees are starting to protect her because they might be getting ready to move anyway. So as you're pushing the bee gone in and moving the bees down to the location where you have your little swarm trap made, be on the lookout for the queen and expect a lot of adjustment and a lot of motion from the bees. They're not going to get as aggressive because now you're going to be moving the bees and they're most looking trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do to try to get out of there and out of the way of the smell. The only other thing I can tell you is that make sure you have your lemongrass oil, wear protective gear, and it might be nice to go ahead and get yourself a bee vac. And that way you can even suck the bees up as they come out of the location as you're pushing them out with the pheromone. You know, without really seeing what's going on, the wall, the dimensions, and kind of like what you're dealing with, this is about the best scenario I can tell you how to push the bees out of the wall. Now, trapping works. Many people do trapping. And it's kind of really cool how eventually the bees move. Um... You're talking about home and, uh, comb and honey in the wall. You know, it depends how long those bees have been there and how fast acting you are to get this system started of trying to push the bees out. They'll probably have some comb built, you know, but to rip out a whole wall, uh, you know, like I said, I don't know the scenario. Remember, anything that has to do with structure and stuff, have a carpenter, have a construction worker come, a contracting company. Show them what you're going to do, the location and stuff. Some people get their homeowner's insurance involved for these types of removals because it can be cost, you know, it can be expensive. It is not cheap to remove honeybees. Right? And by leaving them in the wall, I have seen massive videos of late by JP the bee man that people are killing the bees in the wall and the smell is horrendous. Then the ants come. Then the, the mice come. And eventually the bees will come back because you already have pre-made comb in these walls ready for just a swarm to enter. So you have to remove the comb unless you're going to really fortify to make sure nothing else will get back in there. But don't ever kill the bees in the wall. Uh, the smell is is tremendous of the rotting honey that's inside there, the pollen that's moist that's going to rot, the dead bees that pile up and they're going to rot. The smell can just be like you killed a raccoon in the wall and just let it sit there. So those are some things to think about. I do understand this is your home, and you're looking to probably try to just catch the bees out. If they're not really a hindrance, put up a swarm trap. Maybe they'll make more bees for you, and you might be able to get them. But remember, towards this late part of the season, if there's not a lot of nectar flow, they're not going to make a lot of honey, which means they're not going to make a lot of wax for comb build, and they probably won't make it. Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company, reminding you to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it local. Try to get all the natural pollens for this type of the season. It's the end of the year, and a lot of allergies are really hitting people. And the good raw honey is doing good. There are a lot of even honey companies out there that can even probably give you a pollen count. It does raise the price of the honey, but, you know, a good pollen count can tell you what you have and tell you if you've got good honey. And remember, buy it from a small business or somebody that does it locally. You don't need to buy it off the shelf or truck it in. I have a lot of people ask me, can I get your honey? 
try to support the local guy. I'm sure there's some great beekeepers right next to you. You should just look for them. And speaking of helping those guys out, always help your fellow man, brothers and sisters. That's the one thing I can't describe most, is that one day you'll need that help too. Okay, the uh, next one I have for uh, expert council member is for expert council member Gary Collins. It's about working out, and when you're done working out, smelling like ammonia. Um, I can't say that I've ever experienced this before. I have heard of it, but I've never experienced it. Now, in the Army, in my younger, stupider days, when we used to drink until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning all the time and then get up at you know 5.30 and by 6 o'clock be in PT formations, I remember formations at the end of a run smelling like stale beer coming out of people's bodies, but never ammonia. Gary, what's up with this? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And I have a great, another great question about smelling like ammonia after a strenuous workout and what this could mean. It's uh, pretty straightforward, actually. It, it, it's one of two things or, or both. It is a lack of having adequate carbohydrate or fat to burn as an energy source or, and or a lack of water, dehydration. Um, the way this works, and you see this with endurance athletes primarily, and it's because they're burning so many calories in order to train or in the event itself that their body actually goes catabolic where it means it goes into burning protein as an energy source and this happens with people and that's what I mean I, I've talked about this before there's a big difference between a competitive athlete and an everyday you know person there's just completely different diet far as diet levels far as what you're going to eat macro wise and this is the rule most people can get away with a semi semi kind of low carb diet. I don't like the term low carb a lot. I call it right carb. It's eating the proper amount of carbohydrates for your energy expenditures. Now, endurance athletes are totally different, totally different animal. They have to eat far more carbohydrates than the normal person. Very simple reason is that they're going to burn far more calories during their training and exercise. And you go, well, Gary, how about you just consume more fat? And that kind of works to a point, but once you get into severe and high endurance, like uh, uh, um, this individual is doing, you know, training for uh, a century ride bike ride, which is is pretty killer. I mean, it's you're going to burn a lot of calories, and even training for it. The difference is that trying to consume that much fat is is hard to do because fat is very uh, satiating or it fills you up carbs you can get away with more because you can eat more um little different way in digestion far quicker it goes the way you process you process carbohydrates first carbohydrate sugars obviously then protein then fat fat is the slowest to digest so what could happen and this happens too i've seen people do this is they consume too much fat trying to get their energy expenditures and store that fat as fat well, you get bloated, you get heartburn, you know, it slows your digestion down. So it's always in balance. And again, it's different, different for endurance athletes. I prefer them to eat more carbohydrates and up their fat to a reasonable amount. 
what would this mean? Um, it looks like, you know, the average uh, meal for for Mike is kind of low carb. Um, it's in that realm, especially for someone training like he does. So what I would recommend is adding 25 to 50 grams of carbohydrates a day and 25 to 50 grams of fat a day. Now, depending, everyone's different. He'll have to find the balance, what works for him. But going out and training and riding 84 miles and only having, you know, 160 grams of carbohydrates after that or during, it's not enough. It's nowhere near enough. He needs to at least double that. And more than likely it would be, you know, endurance athletes, especially on a training date, they can go up into the thousand grams of carbohydrates. I know that sounds crazy. I do not recommend that for people, but I have seen it for extreme athletes, people who do, you know, the 100-mile runs and 100-mile bike rides and Ironmans. It's totally different. So um, he, he trying to change it by uh, consuming an electrolyte drink. I don't think that electrolyte drink is, is very necessary. I see, like I said, threefold problem. Not probably enough fat consumption, not enough carbohydrates, and definitely not enough water. Not enough liquids. He's only drinking a couple cups of water a day. Remember the simple rule for for water consumption is take your weight, divide it in half. So he's around 215 pounds, so that would be 107.5 ounces of water, roughly per day, that he needs to consume. And then on the days when you're training and you're sweating a lot, you need to even up that. So you'll probably double that. Um, I've been out and had you know heavy training days or working on the property, and I've drank over a gallon of water easily, you know, a gallon, gallon and a half. So it just depends. But when, with him having issues with nausea, cramps, um, that tells me that's dehydration for sure. Those are the typical symptoms of dehydration. Now, the ammonia smell, again, like I said, it, it's twofold. Because what water does, you excrete ammonia, nitrogen, through your urine. That's what it does. So if you don't have enough water, well, guess where it's going to go? It's going to come out your sweat. That's where it's going to come out, and you're going to have an ammonia smell. And, again, also, that could be from not having enough glycogen. Well, you should have enough glycogen, but if you don't have enough glycogen... You burn through your glycogen, then you're going to go to your fat stores. Then if you don't have enough fat stores, then you go to muscle. So that's kind of the progression. So that's what I would recommend for sure uh, with Mike. Like I said, the electrolyte drink, the easiest electrolyte drink is actually water and sea salt. I don't think he needs the honey, Himalayan, baking soda. It's kind of a concoction that I, I, I think is really unnecessary and with a half cup of lemon juice and one cup of OJ for training, that's a good way to give yourself a good case of heartburn as well because um, it's very acidic. I just don't think it's necessary. Uh, the easiest electrolyte drink I have found is 12 to you know 20 ounces of water with two to four pinches of sea salt. That's all it takes. Um for that, I think everything else looks pretty good. But again, I would recommend that he he plays with it and figure out. But on his definitely his long ride days, definitely needs to up the carbohydrate intake and definitely the water intake. Um, drinking a little too much coffee, coffee will dehydrate you. It acts as a diuretic. Uh, nothing bad about that. Just if you're a 
big time coffee drinker, and I don't recommend more than two cups a day. Honestly, one cup is pretty much perfect because the caffeine becomes addictive. You can tap your adrenal glands, which means you'll have chronic fatigue, headaches, you know, uppityness, crankiness. So I recommend one to two cups um, of coffee a day. But if you're a coffee drinker, you need to even add in a little more water during your day to make sure you don't get dehydrated. Well, I hope that answers the question. And uh, if you have any more, just shoot it on the comments section. Or you can email me at contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot. So I'm going to disagree on the primary issue here. I'm going to give you guys uh, the actual, uh, like a, a sample day of food that this guy's eating. For breakfast, he's eating a half a cup of oatmeal, coffee and cream, coffee during the day with a little cream or milk. Lunch is usually leftovers, meat and veg, no starch, or a salad with chicken or sometimes steak. Snack is a half a large sweet potato late in the afternoon, usually seven days per week. Um, it's a lot of sweet potato. Um, dinner, meat, greens, and other veg, no starch usually. Sometimes a little cheese, peanuts, raisins, two to three nights a week. Not all of these every day. A handful of pretzels every day. So I don't know if there's a carb deficit there. I think there's a caloric deficit. And if you're trying to lose weight, a caloric deficit is fine. I, I'll tell you what I think is missing here, and Barry kind of touched on it and then started talking about not enough carbs. I think there's not enough fat in this 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 diet. Um, when I start seeing the word chicken pop up a lot, and I see endurance athletes, I think chicken breast, which is low-fat cut. Uh, I think skinless. I, I, I think that, um, personally, the, the breakfast is way too light for this type of a, of a regime. Uh, I would like to see the oatmeal just... Plum go away, honestly. I don't, I don't, that this is my opinion, right? Um, but I think this is a guy that needs to be eating two, three, four eggs for breakfast most days with some meat, with good quality fats. Think olive oil, avocado, and things like that. I, I, I personally feel that's the issue. The water is a problem. The water may be the biggest part of the problem. She says, can you please tell him to drink more water? He usually drinks only coffee at work, except a little when he's working out, one or two cups. Eh, wrong answer. Coffee is not hydration. Um, listen to your wife, Mike. Coffee is not hydration. You're riding close to 100 miles on your bike. Drink freaking water or drink some sort of infused water. You know, um, the one cup of orange juice, half cup of lemon juice, four cups of coconut water. Coconut water, honestly, that much coconut water might be causing some digestive distress in of itself. Real honey, salt, baking soda. I'm with Mike, I, I, with Gary. I don't know, Mike, that that's needed. Um, it probably doesn't hurt, but you should be drinking um, at least a half a gallon of water a day. And if you're going to still drink coffee, I'm not going to put me down for drinking coffee. I gave it up, and all I can tell you is I feel better. I, I have coffee once in a while on weekends now, and I feel a lot better. I think losing a lot of weight again is, is part of it too. But definitely, coffee's caffeinated. I don't necessarily have a problem with caffeine. But when you're drinking coffee and you're not drinking water, you're going to drink more coffee than you should. And when you drink more coffee than you should, you're going to get more caffeine than you should. And then the water that is coming along with the ride for the coffee is being pushed out of your body because the caffeine is dehydrating you. 
So I would say, you know, try my mix, which is, you know, basically lime juice and water sweetened with stevia and drink that chilled. Uh, that's a lot more of a hydrating drink. Cucumber water, celery water, these are things if you don't like. A lot of times people that don't drink enough water, what they say is I don't like water. Like if you're working, and then you drink when you're working out, because when you're working out, it's cold, it feels good, so you'll do it. But when it just comes to picking up a glass of water and just drinking water throughout the day, they don't want to. So flavoring it with something. I think if you up your caloric intake, you up your intake of good fats, and you, you make a considerable effort to hydrate, I think you'll, you'll see a huge difference. And here's something I would say. If you don't see a swing in your weight between, let's say, right after dinner and you have a drink or two, whether it's adult or otherwise, right? You know, but let's say a couple hours before bed and you weigh yourself. You get up in the morning, you take care of business, go to the bathroom and do all that. You should see a weight fluctuation somewhere between three and seven pounds. If you're not seeing that kind of a weight fluctuation, then your, your, your body's not got enough hydration going on. That means you're not carrying water in the evenings that you should be that's being used by your body's processes throughout the evening as you're sleeping to repair all the damage you've done today. I know there's nothing scientific about that, but I can tell you when you're living the right way, just try it. Weigh yourself, you know, either the exact same clothing or just, you know, your boxers or whatever about two hours before bed. When you get up in the morning, before you eat anything, make sure you've used the bathroom both ways, okay? Get back on the scale and compare yourself from night to morning. And if you're getting well hydrated, you're going to see, you know, three, four pounds of water because your, water, your body's going to use, you know, a third to a half a gallon of water uh, in, in waste elimination. It's going to go out in urine and in other body processes and small amounts of perspiration and things like that are going to go on and waste elimination, etc., and water weighs eight pounds a gallon. So you think about this, if you pick up and drink a quart of water, all right, that's two pounds. That's two pounds. And a lot of times people get obsessed with their weight and they, they're trying to shed water. Well, your water shouldn't... You weigh yourself in the morning, I'll just put it at that, if you're worried about your weight. But I think you need more calories more good quality fats, and with the amount of work you're doing, I don't have a problem with the carbs you're taking at all. I don't, because you're, you're doing so much work. But you may want to get rid of that oatmeal in the morning. That may, A half a cup of oatmeal, coffee and cream, is not a breakfast for a, an athlete in training. Um, you can do Gary's way, and you can increase you know, other sources of carbohydrate and, and calorie in that morning, or you can do it with you know my way, but one way or another, you're not setting the tone for your body right with that kind of a breakfast for the amount of work and exertion that you're doing. I, I personally don't think so. With that, let's go on to uh, our next question, which is for uh, Ben Falk. This one I'm going to actually read the question on a little bit because I think that, uh, that Ben just kind of goes into the answer and it would better be have some frame reference for the audience. Question is, uh, what's the best way to reestablish pasture when it's covered in weeds? Details in your book, The Regenerative Farm and Homestead, you wrote about coming to grips with weedy pasture by doing controlled burns or reseeding behind. 
I recently purchased a five-acre lot in eastern Ontario with a patch that provides a lot of diversity except for the desirable pasture species such as timothy and clover. I have lots of time but little money to dedicate now. I wish to improve the pasture before introducing livestock next year when I will have both time and money and control our controlled burn still your preferred technique. And in the meantime, is hiring a farmer to cut my field and leave the hay and, and pseudo uh, an acceptable soil-building weed control technique. Uh, many thanks, Adrian in eastern Ontario. Ben, what say to you on this one? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk and Whole Systems Design with a question about um, transforming pasture and improving pasture as a whole. Um, yeah, these are all... Um, Good ideas that are being mentioned here in this question. Um, there's a lot of ways to do it. One of the best things is just get animals onto the um, site because animals create their own good pasture if they're managed well, which largely is getting the stocking density correct and the rotations correct, um, which is, you know, can get complex, but in, in the short long of it, essentially. Uh, having higher stock densities than most people have and moving them much more frequently than most people do. So just intensive rotational grazing um, and responding to the condition of the pasture to direct your rotational grazing. Um, you know, over winter, feeding out hay on pasture in the winter is a good way to do it in your climate. Um, as you mentioned, putting big round bells out and just letting them manure up an area. Following of broadcasting seed can help a lot. Of course, there'll be seed in that hay usually that's viable, but I'm a big fan of you get a lot of bang for your buck with broadcasting seed, especially nitrogen fixers. I don't seed any, any grasses really because the grasses always come in. Um, but orchard grass is maybe one exception. I find even if you have lots of clover and vetch early on, it's just not going to stay that way. The grasses come right in. So I don't find much of a need to bring those grasses in. They'll just, they're there. They'll continue to dominate. And the hard part is keeping those nitrogen fixers representing a high uh, proportion of the composition. You know, I've gone from full on 100% clover and vetch, which is, you know, can be actually not ideal to have that much depending on bloat potential of the animals. Um, and, you know, give it two years, the grasses are coming in, give it three years, and it might just have like a nice, really nice balance and give it five years. And if you don't keep up with grazing it or even four, and it's going to look like a pretty degraded site again. Um, so oftentimes if you don't graze it well or enough. So Burning can help. I mean, there's a lot of different disturbance mechanisms you can use to kind of knock back the succession and restart a succession with new species present. Burning, um, tilling even, certainly grazing it hard, feeding out hay, uh, you know, in the winter, heavy manuring, which that does, are all good ones, um, you know, making swales is a good one because you end up scraping an area and having a nice germination surface. So, and, you know, some weeds are really valuable. So be careful about, you know, what you mean by the term weed because it might mean something that's really good for animals to eat, um, even though it's not a, a, a crop that, or a, a plant we often want to see in our pastures. There's a lot of very medicinal weeds out there. Um weeds in quote so good luck thanks a lot yeah i agree with ben and the the work of alan savory springs to mind where he took cattle into places that had no grass 
they had no weeds. People really thought, like, how's a cow even going to make a living here? And they he put them in large groups beyond recommended densities. He moved them very, very quickly through the landscape. And, of course, over time, as the situation improved, you could slow that movement down. But my, I mean, my point is he put cattle into areas where the ground was you know, half bare and turned it into pasture in some of the harshest climates in the world, certainly harsher than the climate of Ontario. We're talking, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. We're talking uh, very, very harsh climates in Central America uh, and, and as well as the southwestern United States, such as West Texas, New Mexico. And if it works there, it would work anywhere. The, the, the best way to develop pastures is to use the animals to develop them. Uh, next question is also kind of permaculture related. Uh, last one for a council member, and I've got the cleanup bat, batting uh, position of the day. Uh, this one, though, is for Jeff Lawton on making type 1 errors. And I do have some additional thoughts on this one when Jeff is done. And here's what I love about this question. What do you hear the passion for life? and the health of other human beings in this question from Jeff. I, I love the way that this comes through here. I, I don't know that it was intended. I think it just kind of happened. Take it away, Jeff. Okay, number three, and it's from AJ. And AJ wants to know about type 1 errors. And um, he's kind of quoting Bill saying we should make a lot of mistakes. Shouldn't we go out there and make mistakes? That's... Right, I mean, you learn mostly from your mistakes. A lot of it's pain-associated memory learning <laughs> or muscle-aching memory learning. But anyway, type 1 errors are not like that. If you actually look at the definition of a type 1 error, it's when you do something that is a good idea, but you do it in a way that it doesn't work. So that's a real, real shame. For instance, I, on a lot of aid work I do, where people are really suffering and kids with cholera and malaria really make me angry because there's no need for it. We can design that. It's easy. And aid organizations go in and they, they build hundreds, sometimes thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of compost toilets, which is a good idea because it's waterless toilets and all you have to do is get people to manage them properly. And they work absolutely fine. And they stop cholera which is usually fecal material on the surface at an ambient temperature in the wet season that gives little kids cholera. But they put compost toilets in that don't work. Now, that's that's evil. That's rigorously applied stupidity. That's a type 1 error. It's a very good idea done, done in a really dumb way so it doesn't work. Let's do it, and let's do it smart, and let's do it so it works. We've got to be clever. We've got to be smart. We've got to be efficient. We've got to be accountable. We've got to be real honest about how we go out there and help people. Don't go out and do good ideas in a dumb way and create a type 1 error. We know, we know how to do sustainable development. Let's do the stuff we can do well. Let's do it smart. Go out and make mistakes on things that you don't know how to do and readjust them and dynamically Evolve them, let your systems demonstrate the evolutions of why they didn't work, and then refine them as a constant design, definite, working model. And stick to it. Don't go out and do good ideas in a way that they don't work. That's a type 1 error. So define your errors here. Type 1 errors are exactly that. 
good idea that we know works done in a way so it doesn't work so people don't think it's a good idea anymore and at, if that's being manipulated that really is rigorously applied stupidity and that's evil and then yeah go ahead and trial other things and, and see whether your idea works and adjust it let it demonstrate its evolutions and then tell everybody how it works as a constant and don't let them do type 1 errors with your new constant either. Okay, there you go. See you next time, or let's hear you. You'll hear me next time. Cheers. See, what I'll add to that is what I heard Bill say one time is a type 1 error is an error that you regret as soon as you complete it and continue to regret for the rest of your life. Okay, uh, because it is so difficult to to rectify, and sometimes they are truly difficult to rectify, and sometimes they're painful to rectify, but not that bad. So an example is if you put a large pond in the wrong place, draining that pond and fixing it's really hard. It's not just putting dirt back in a hole. That's not how these things work. So that's a type one error that you may indeed regret forever. Even if you figure out a way to kind of salvage it, you'll always think to yourself, man, I shouldn't have put that there. Okay? So that would be one example uh, of a type one error. And it feeds right into what Jeff was saying. So if you make that error on your own property, then you have to live with it. You can learn from it. You can adapt from it. But if you're doing something for somebody else and you commit a type 1 error, they have to live with your mistake or they have to be burdened with the problems of your mistake. And sometimes those problems can be extremely harsh. For instance, cholera kills people. So when Bill says go out and make lots of mistakes, he's talking about lots of like not type 1 errors. He's talking about lots of little mistakes. If you're not sure if a type of garden bed will work, Build one and see if it works. If it seems like it works, build three or four before you tell the world that it works, right? Because you don't really know. And have something to compare it to. Use a little bit of the scientific method that seems to be absent in the world of, oh, I don't know climate change, right? We don't have a control group. We, I mean, you just don't extrapolate data based on other people's bullshit and say that it's going to work. And I think there's way too much of that in permaculture where, you know, The article I wrote for Permaculture News on Hugel Swale is a perfect example. Because somebody sees Hugel culture, because somebody sees swale, well, the two must go together. Well, there's all kinds of bad things that can happen. And then someone builds one and says it works because stuff's growing there. Well, without something to compare it to with an actual control where they had the same solar exposure, the same soil, everything else, you don't know that it works. Right, and then because then we have it, you know, a question that came in for Ben earlier this month about a place where the whole backyard of this guy's place in Maine, where it was logged out and the wood was buried, like oh, woohoo, culture is all anaerobic and nothing wants to grow there and it stinks, and it's a big problem now. Well, Hugel swell can turn into that. It's not that you could never do those two techniques together. It's just that most of the time you'd be better off not doing them together. And see if you do that, that can be a type one error. Here's a type one error I made. I built a Hoogle mound. I didn't build a Hoogle swell, but I built a Hoogle mound in an unconnected system at a fairly distant place from the house without irrigation in place because it's a Hoogle mound. It doesn't need irrigation. Yeah, it did here. And I ended up eventually deciding that whole idea was bad. And my original plan was to run a series of these Hoogle mounds over 250 feet long along a fence line, a dividing fence line, and to grow things out of that Hoogle mound and grapes out of them up onto the fence and things like that. And when I did that, 
I had Josiah Wallingford here as my intern. He got very excited about it and thought we should just bust this out. And I said, no. And he said, why? I said, because no. And what I didn't want to say is because it might not work. But that's really the truth. I was like, this might be a bad idea. I have a lot of effort into this one Hoogle mount. So a year later, we end up basically taking all the, the – we had to bring extra dirt in for it because here we don't have any dirt. And we spread it out. We used it in different locations. We dug it up. We pulled the wood back out of it, which had decayed not at all in a year, not, not a bit of decay. It would still make fine firewood after a year in the ground. That tells you it was the wrong place, wrong situation. It was a Type 1 error light, right? That's a Type 1 error light where a dam building a house – in the wrong place is a type one error big time. It's hard to move a house. You start looking at what scale of permanence. How hard is it to change something? A mountain is going to be a mountain. You know, unless we do something stupid like blow the top off it to buying coal, you can't change the fact that there's a mountain there. So large, huge geographic formations are like the most permanent thing we have. A river is a river. A mountain is a mountain. The next most difficult thing to change in the scale of permanence is honestly laws and regulations in government. And when Joe taught the PDC, at the beginning of it, he talked quite a bit about government in that context. And a lot of people were like, I didn't think this was a political course. If they got through it, they would have seen that kind of went away. But that's a very important element because it's something you can't change. So if you want to do something and you're looking at the restrictions of design on a property – Moving to a place where you can't do what you want to do is very much a type 1 error. So those are some other thoughts that I have on that. Um, the next question I have today is a really short one, but an interesting one. This is from Dustin. Dustin says, my son will be turning three in a few weeks, and I'd like to spend some time with him fishing. Do you have any recommendations on a fishing rod for his age or any past resources you may have discussed concerning fishing and getting into fishing? Enjoy the show. Well, you can certainly, Dustin, just go to the Survival Podcast and, and search for fishing. I did a whole series on fishing, though I'll say that it may not apply very well to this. because Well, it, it might, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But it was really more for kind of adults, and I would say any teenager listening to that show, those shows could learn an awful lot about fishing and go out and apply them. Three-year-olds are not mentally at the place to use higher-level information like that, and they're not mentally at the place for you to use much of it with them, okay? So you have to advance kids slowly with fishing because fishing requires something that's not in abundance in young children, and that thing is patience, right? So we need to look for ways to fit in with their world, not try to make them fit in with our world. For example, I am currently teaching my five-year-old grandson to fish, and there is a big difference in the mental maturity between a five-year-old and a three-year-old. I'm not saying five-year-olds are hugely mentally mature, but comparative to three-year-olds, they come a long way. This little kid's been around here for a while. I remember him when he's three, and I know him now that he's five, and in many ways, he's much easier to deal with at five. My com I personally come into my stride with kids about seven. Seven is about the age when I can sit a kid down, I can have a logical discussion with them, and I can make them understand my view, and therefore they can make me understand their view, and we can reason together. So I'm, I'm getting there with my grandson, and then I have a whole granddaughter coming up behind him that I'll have to do that whole process over again with. But what I'm saying is the best advice I can give you with a three-year-old in fishing is find a place with sunfish, bluegills, Something that you throw bread in the water and they eat it, like off the surface. 
So when you put a little piece of worm on a hook and throw it in, they just hit it, right? And it doesn't matter if they're two inches long. The kid catches a fish, he's happy. The good news is a lot of times these type of things coincide with things like little city parks and stuff like that, where there's ducks that can be fed bread, and the ducks eat bread, and the fish get trained into bread, and the ducks eat the duck, the fish eat the duck poo, and there's little docks, and then there's like places to run and play and stuff like that. And if you don't have that, that's okay. If it's more of a natural setting, that's fine. But what I think children need is short duration fishing trips. Try to get them some action if you can and give them other things to do. And especially as they get older that are not Facebook, Instagram, cell phone, iPad oriented. Outdoor things to do, but toys. I don't care if the kid's sitting there with his plastic baseball bat. Hitting the ball and running and getting it and bringing it back and doing it again while he's supposed to be paying, you know, paying attention to fish. You know, the whole be quiet, you'll scare the fish. That's just because people like me don't want noise when we're fishing. The fish don't care. Now, if you're in a boat and you're moving around and stuff like that, that's different. When you're fishing on the side of a lake, those fish don't hear you and they don't care. Okay? They just don't. I guess maybe if you're screaming at them, maybe, but kids running around playing does not disturb the fish. It disturbs the fishermen. So, Don't try to make a fishing trip an adult fishing trip with a three-year-old. Don't try to have an adult fishing trip that a three-year-old comes along with. But you have to have a three-year-old trip, and eventually a four-year-old trip and a five-year-old trip. And if you're lucky and you have a kid that's like I was, by about eight, you have a kid that's more dedicated to learning and 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 being there and doesn't care how long you're there and will get bit by bugs and, and, and sweat and stink and doesn't care and will be, when you're out of bait, will be turning rocks over to find fiddler crabs or digging holes to find worms and bugs so you don't have to leave. Right? I think people like me are a little sick in the head and we're a little rare. Like There's not many people that are that fanatical, especially as kids about fishing. If you have one, great. Um, but if you don't, you have to tailor it to their needs. As far as gear... This is what I want you to get in your head right now. Dad's fishing gear, youngster's fishing gear. Okay, Dad's fishing gear includes his poles and all his stuff that you normally think of, and Dad's tackle box. Inside Dad's tackle box is Dad's tackle and Junior's tackle. They all go in one box. Junior does not, at three years old, Junior does not have his own tackle box because tackle boxes have sharp things in them called hooks that Junior doesn't need to mess with. One hook on one rod is enough to try to make sure it doesn't end up in him or you or someone else or the cat or what have you, okay? So one hook, one rod, junior's hands. Three-year-olds do not need to be casting. Three-year-olds do not need to be casting. Dad casts and dad hands the reel to junior. If you're in a place where there's a lot of fish and they're pretty easy to catch, it might even be what I'm still doing with my grandson mostly is I hold the rod, I hook the fish and hand it to him. Now, I've got trained catfish down there. I can usually get two or three for them pretty quick. But I'm just teaching him how to reel fish in right now. And you know what? That's exciting, and he likes that. And when we sit there and we're waiting for the cork to go down or whatever, we talk about stuff, right? It's more important that you can engage and keep the mind interested than worry about the high-quality fishing gear because three-year-olds in general are not going to catch the next wall hanger. It's just not going to happen. Don't try to make it that way. They don't, you don't need to worry about, you know, get sits and, and, and jigging pigs and, uh, for the bass fishermen out there or, you know, slabbing you know, the bottom for white bass fishermen or, you know, jigging for crappies. You don't need to worry about any of that stuff. You just need to worry about getting a line in the water and hopefully getting a couple sunfish or a couple little bullhead catfish or something like that. Cause one or two and they get hooked.
because they started to realize you never know what's going to come out of there next. And that that engages the mind. This is why people you know, pan for gold even though they're never going to get rich because I might find that big nugget. This is why people like to walk, walk the beach and look for seashells and find special seashells even though they're not really worth anything. This is why people actually enjoy picking berries because I might find that one really sweet, perfect one. We're, it's hunter-gatherers. We're, we, are, we are based on this concept of discovering the undiscovered and, and what might be there. And this is what you want to switch on for your kid. As far as gear for him, I'd say don't overstress this, um, but a good quality, and I'm talking 10, 20 bucks, push-button, closed-face fishing reel. Um, I Here's my thing. You know, the Superman fishing rods and the Barbie fishing rods and stuff like that. I'm not really thinking that's the best thing out there. If it, if it makes your kid happy, I don't want to take that away. Um, they already have it. Definitely don't take it away. But I think if you're going to teach a kid about the outdoors and fishing, like so Superman or Batman or whatever the hell it is, that's that's... You know, imagination play in the house, in the backyard, or whatever. The whole point of, like, when you do something like going fishing is it's its own thing. So we don't need to have Batman with fishing, right? The fishing rod. Now, if he wants to bring his Batman toys and sit there on the bank playing with his Batman toys or whatever, you know, just I'm, this is my grandson I'm talking about here, right? He likes Batman. Um, or superheroes of any kind, whatever. That, if that keeps him happy, that's great. But, you know, to me, why why are we going to make the Batman fishing rod? The fishing is about a fish. It's just a plain Jane, low cost, sh- kind of shorter rod, push button, no backlash, no messing up reel. And consider the equipment that's dedicated to them throwaway equipment. It is stuff that is going to break. It is going to wear out. In the end, all of its junk, it's okay. Hopefully they'll stick around, and then maybe you graduate them into something a little bit better, you know, like a, a, a twenty to twenty-five dollars Epco setup or something like that. As they get into that five to seven-year-old range, and then you graduate them into better gear. You teach them how to use an open-faced reel, but for everybody's happiness, stick to closed-faced reels for kids. One rod per kid. Pay attention, and the best thing is a ratio of one adult to one child when they're little before they learn how to do things themselves. You're going to bait the hook. You're going to do the casting on tackle. Please avoid the giant bobbers. I see this all the time, and I just want to walk over and say, I'm sorry, you're making sure your kid will never catch a fish. You do not know what you're doing. Please let me fix this for you. Because I have a mental filter. I don't. But when I see parents come out, and they got the little kid, and he's going to go fishing, and all of a sudden, plop, and there's this bobber there the size of a freaking baseball, Right, and there's a weight on it, about a half ounce to an ounce of weight, and then they got a giant hook with a little tiny piece of worm on it, and and bluegills are just pounding it, and the bobbers just bluegill couldn't pull the damn bobber over if it could get the hook in its mouth, right? Small gear, small bobbers, tiny weights if any at all, um, small hooks, long shank, so that you can get fish off the hook in a, in a hurry. So when I say long shank, what I'm saying is you want your hooks. Instead of like your like I use like a number ten bait holder for panfish because um, I'm going to be really quick on the draw when I'm catching panfish. They're not going to swallow it. They're not going to have a deep hooking things like that. And it's going to be a better hook ratio for panfish with a, with that kind of short shank hook. But with kids, you want to use a long shank hook 
so that there's a lot of hook protruding out of this fish's mouth. Kids are going to be a lot slower to actually set the hook and reel the fish in. And with a smaller uh, short shank hook, the fish is more likely to swallow it. Now you got a fish, you got to cut the line. That means you got to tie on and just throw it back and hope it lives. And it may or may not, but that's the only chance it's got. If you start yanking guts out, you're going to kill it. If you do pull it out and it starts bleeding, this freaks the kid out before they're ready to understand the realities of fishing. Um, everything you add that you have to do, getting pliers out, when you're trying to make a kid happy, is one more thing they're waiting on. You got your rod in the water now, fish is taking your rod. And uh, while they're taking your rod, you're trying to get this fish, and the kid's bleeding, the kid's crying. Long shank hooks make that go away. So even if you are using different gear, because remember you have dad's gear and kid's gear, for the kids you want to go with long shank hooks. I really recommend you consider getting long shank hooks, like a number 10, number 8, number 12, somewhere in that range, panfish size, that are snelled, if you can find them. The snelled means they have a piece of monofilament on them, and that monofilament on one it has a loop. And then you use a small snap swivel, and you, you take that snap swivel, and you put it through that loop, and that puts the hook on the rod. And then you can just take a small float, and if you have a, you know, a typical float, you can usually put it on from the side. Don't get those floats that have to be complicated with slip knots and all. Just a small, either long or round float, uh, just big enough to hold everything up, kind of stand up, very sensitive, right? And that, that can be clipped on and taken on and off without taking everything else apart. What this lets you do is travel. You take the uh, the the what do you call it? The snap swivel. Put it over you know the eye of the the the, the guide eye eye of the rod and tighten it up like you do with a hook. But there's no hook there to get anybody's hands. And when you get to the lake and it's time to start fishing and the kid's in a hurry, you just pull out a, swell, a snelled hook out of the tackle box, drop it on, put your float on, put your bait on, and you're in the water. If you get snagged or something like that, if a fish swallows the hook and you do have to cut the line, right? You cut the line, you take off the piece of monofilament, please put that in your tackle box, don't leave it there to hurt other animals, you put another hook on, you go again, right? And that lets you let the kid carry the rod. You're not worried about him getting the hook. And you, somebody else, the cat, the dog, the dog catcher, whatever it is, what have you. And everything's nice and clean, and he can carry his own rod. Okay, But please try to have other things for them to do. Don't get fussy about it. If they want to go turn rocks over and stuff, let them do it. You know, If you're doing the thing where you put a couple sticks in the ground, and you got the rods sitting out there, and you're waiting for a bite, and the kid wants to go play, let him go play. If he wants you to go play a little bit too, as long as you can see the rods, you know, do the rock trick. So the rock trick is you open the bale so the line can spool out. You take a small little rock and you put it on the line on the ground so there's some tension against the reel so that wind doesn't make it all get all nasty and birds nested. And then if a fish takes it, it just pulls the line up from under the rock and the line starts going. Then you set the drag and boom, you hook your fish. And that way you can play and do other things. Make it not just fishing. Make it whatever activities they want to go along with that fishing. But to me, again, I'd leave the Superman rods and the Barbie rods you know, for the little girls or whatever at the side. I wouldn't even take the kid to buy the fishing rod. I'd go get him a fishing rod and give it to him like a present. See, as much as kids like to go to stores and get to pick stuff out, they don't know what they need. And they don't know what really works best for them. So you figure out what you think works best in the situation and, and make it like a present without a holiday. So you don't have to have a birthday or a Christmas to get a surprise present, right? Now it's not only did you get this fishing rod, Daddy's going to take you fishing on Saturday. You want to do that? Yay, great, yay. Um, 
if they don't like it, take them home. Take them somewhere else. Go do something else. And then, then they'll be willing to go again. If they don't like it and you keep saying a little bit longer, a little bit longer, you got to understand, when, when two guys are fishing, two guys like you and me, and we're fishing and we've been out for about an hour and the fish just aren't biting, and we said, we'll give it a little bit longer, and we both pop a beer and we sit back and just kind of relax, maybe smack a mosquito or two, and 30 to 40 minutes go by, that's a little longer to us. It's no big deal because a bad day fishing is better than a good day working, right? For a kid, 10 more minutes is an eternity when you're three years old. So when they're fed up, go do something else so that you'll have the opportunity to do it again. I think all of that's more important than the special gear. And another suggestion I have is, you know, don't be afraid to be out there with a little rinky-dink rod um, yourself alone at some of like the little spots you can find and go go out there and, and you know, because like here's this big man. And he's out there with, like, maybe not the kid's push-button rod, a little ultralight rod or something, pulling Sonny's out with a little bread ball on the end of a number 10 hook. Well, if you go do that, you'll be like, okay, this, you might find a little ditch somewhere with a little deep hole in it full of bluegills. And you'll know what time of day to go. Try to time things when it's not too hot, not too cold, when the weather's right. Go somewhere where there's some easy-to-catch fish. If you can do that, then you can get them going. Because the first time I took Braylon down to our little pond, he was kind of enjoying it, but he was kind of ready to go in. He got bit by a mosquito or two. It was kind of hot out. He had been there long enough, and the fish just weren't eating. You know, because my fish, like, one day they're crazy like you'd expect, and the next day, like, you know, they just don't eat anything. Just how fish are. And uh, we also we catch one. So, so and, I was, and he said he wanted to leave, and I said, one more second. And I was being true to it one more second. And where we live, I mean, honestly, if you want to leave, you can just go back to Grandma, right? But he wanted to stay, and it took maybe a minute. We caught a fish. I said, okay, you ready? Oh, no, I want to catch another one. Okay, so it took about five minutes. We catch another one. So you're done now? Oh, no, I want to catch another one. Once the fish started coming in, and they were little bitty eight-inch channel catfish, because that's about how big they are at the time I started fishing with them. Um, he didn't care. He caught fish. That's all that mattered to him, right? He caught a fish. He's five. A little bit more advanced than three. So kind of, you know, figure that out and make that work for you. But, I mean, above all, have other stuff that the kid can do. Let them play with a ball. Let them go play on the monkey bars if you're at a park or whatever. Uh, especially if, like, mom and dad are there together and he wants to go with mom and play on. And dad's going to sit there with the rods for a little bit. And then dad can yell, we got a fish. You know, hook it, leave it in the water. Call mom. Hey, mom, there's a fish on. Send the kid over. You know, and let the kid reel it in. That's, you want to hook a kid, hook a fish and hand them a rod. That's how you do it. Anyway, with that, if you like this show and the work that I do, please consider supporting the Member Support Brigade. You can do that uh, by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members to learn more. That's all I'll say about that today. The other thing you can do to support this show is do all of your Amazon shopping by going to tspaz.com first, T-S-P-A-Z.com. You'll get to a page on my website. You'll see a link. Click here to ship shop for any and all uh, items on Amazon. Click that link. Next thing you know, you're on Amazon. Go about your Amazon shopping like you always would. Go buy the Batman rod, even though I said not to, and we would get credit for your purchase of the $9 Batman rod. Uh, or dog diapers or anything that you were going to buy on Amazon, whether it's for your kitchen or your prepping or whatever it is or your business. All you got to do is shop Amazon through our links, and you'll be able to do that. I also always put out every day an Amazon item of the day. And today's Amazon item of the day is actually a product I use to do videos with. 
It's a little um, tripod mount for phones like the iPhone and the Samsung Galaxy. And it comes with a little Bluetooth remote control. And you can set your phone up on a tripod with your camera pointed at you when you want to do video work. You pull your little remote out and you hit record. And then you do your video and then you hit the button again and it stops. That's the whole thing. And that's pretty cool. You think it'd be kind of expensive, right? How about less than 12 bucks? It's like 11.69 or something like that. And it actually works. It actually works. And I give away in my article today all kinds of little tips about how I do things. Uh, about how I shoot video, about how when you're doing video behind the camera. So if you're not doing a video of yourself, you wouldn't need this thing. And uh, you go outside, let's say you put a garden in, you want to show people your garden on your YouTube channel, just an example, or something you built in your workshop. So you're behind the camera talking. You want better quality audio? Well, you can get the little lav mic that I linked to in my article for the tripod use if you want to. But all you have to do if you have an earpiece... You know, like a like a headphone set that comes with it, with a with an earpiece for talking on the phone. Just plug that into your phone when you're shooting behind you. Your audio quality will go up 100%. And that's the number one thing that annoys people on the uh, on YouTube is when you have bad quality audio, wind and stuff like that. Just use your earpiece. Um, if you are going to shoot with a with the little thing that I talked about today, with the remote control and the the mounting bracket and all, and you're going to be like inside or in a workshop where you're not moving around a lot and with a tripod, that's what you would expect. All you got to do is get the little lav mic that I have linked into the article and an extension cord for the for the microphone. Run that across the floor, plug it into your phone. Get set up, clip that microphone somewhere on your work surface, somewhere near you or even on yourself, and then do your 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 presentation and you've got great quality audio. With that, you can shoot video that for YouTube for that kind of show and tell stuff. That's as good as if you had a thousand dollar video camera. I give a lot of other tips away in today's article. So even if you're not interested in that particular product, if you're interested in you know doing videos for YouTube and things like that for your business uh, or just for your personal use, really come take a look at it today. And as always, just consider shopping on TSPAS and check out the reviews for TSPAS.com. All right, so um, song of the day today I'll get straight into because we had kind of a long show today. Um, but it ties right in with the last question. And it is um, by Trace Atkins. I've played it before. It's called Just Fishing. And if you listen to this song, it could be all the advice that I gave for fishing other than the tackle advice summed up in one. It doesn't really matter about fish. It matters about being together. And I've played this song almost every single time that someone's asked me about taking their kid fishing for the first time. In the end, you know, it's my wife gave much, you know, usually it's the guys that, that give quicker uh, more logical answers and women kind of bring all the other stuff to it. Uh, my grand, my, 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 uh, my wife just said, just take them. That was her entire life. Just take them. You'll figure it out. Just get out there and do it with them. And, uh, that's kind of what this song says, you know, cause it, it's, it's not about the fishing, you know, and then this song is, and if you've seen Trace Atkins, this is a big dude. Right. He's out there with this little girl and her pink fishing pole and she's talking about, you know, Barbie dolls and 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 uh, all that stuff, and he doesn't care because he spent time with his little girl. So for the caller and for anybody else thinking about taking the kids fishing, make it about the time. The fishing will take care of itself. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
pink rotten reel She's doing almost everything but sitting still Talking about her ballet shoes and training wheels And her kittens And she thinks we're just fishing I say daddy loves you baby one more time She says I know, I think I've got a bite Laughing, crying, smiling, dying here inside's what I call living. And she thinks we're just fishing on the riverside, throwing back what we could fry, drowning worms and killing time. Nothing too ambitious. She ain't even thinking about what's really going on right now. But I guarantee this memory. She thinks we're just fishing She's already pretty Like her mama is Gonna drive the boys all crazy Give her daddy fits And I better do this Every chance I get Cause time is Ticking It is And she thinks we're just fishing on Throwing back what we could fry Drowning worms and killing time Nothing too ambitious She ain't even thinking about What's really going on right now But I guarantee this memory's a bigger And she thinks we're just fishing